Welcome to the Tech Suite, your go-to source for the latest legal updates on the fastest moving sector, brought to you by Minter Allison Rudd Watts. I'm your host today, Libby Canole, a senior associate in our technology team. Today, I'm joined by Rosie Park, a senior solicitor in my team, to delve into the world of SaaS contracting. In today's podcast, we're going to look at this from a customer perspective. So you're wanting to use a SaaS service and you've been given a supplier's standard terms. What are the key points to consider? What are particular pinch points that you should watch out for? And what's the real risk? Before we begin, please note that nothing we are discussing today is legal advice and all information in this podcast is correct as of the date of recording, which is 6th of November, 2023. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Libby. It's great to be here talking to you. So here's the scenario. Your organization has a particular business need and has identified a software product that can help it to meet that need. This could be just about anything from payroll, HR, financial systems, scheduling, compliance, you name it, there is a SaaS product somewhere that can help. So the business has done its part, making sure this product will do what it needs to, you've agreed the price that you'll pay for it, all that sort of thing. And then you get hit with the contract. Typically, this will be the supplier's standard terms and conditions. Now, you may be the in-house lawyer in this scenario, or perhaps you're the business owner, and you may or may not be particularly comfortable getting into the legal side of things. So how do you go about making sure the contract does all it needs to, and also that you have the protections that you need? Hold up, Libby. Before we get into that, maybe you should explain what we mean when we talk about a SaaS product? Uh, Yes, that's a good point. Thanks, Rosie. SaaS stands for Software as a Service. It's the most common way these days that your standard, off-the-shelf software products are provided to customers. So, Rosie, are you old enough to remember the days when you would go into a shop and buy a physical CD-ROM with Microsoft Office on it, for example? Yes, I do remember that. Okay, and then you'd go home and you'd put it in a disk drive in your CPU and you'd download it onto your specific PC. So I vaguely remember those days. But you might have noticed that no one does that anymore. I don't even know where I would put a CD-ROM, actually, in my computer. Everything is done online now. And you tend to access software through the cloud, which is a whole separate topic for another podcast. But basically, when we talk about SaaS, we mean software products that are standard, generic. They're not developed just for you. There might be some customizations you can play around with, but you're basically getting the same product as everyone else. So one of the key points about a SaaS service is that it is provided with efficiency in mind rather than a bespoke service. One service is made in such a way that it can be used by many, and that efficiency passes through to the way it's being procured. Is this why SaaS contracts are likely to be on standard terms? Yeah, that, that's right. So the SaaS model uh, relies on having uh, one product that is provided in exactly the same way to all the customers, um, except for those sort of minor customizations that we talked about. And the benefit of this from a customer's perspective is that it keeps the price down. There's no special effort that's required to create something just for one customer. Um, Everyone is getting the same thing in in the same box. But the other side of that is that SaaS vendors will usually be pretty resistant to changing their standard terms. So you need to have some realistic expectations when you look at these as to what you're actually going to be able to change. 
The exception to this, of course, is if you're a really key strategic customer, and frankly, if you're spending a lot of money, your bargaining power might be a little bit different. But in most cases, that's not going to be the situation that you're going into. Unlike a major tech project that is really tailored to the specific needs of the customer and where every little clause tends to be um, negotiated, uh, with SaaS contracts, we really need to be pragmatic. We need to focus on the key areas of risk. So in many cases, when you get these terms and conditions to review, you're going to be approaching this as a risk acceptance exercise. You're going to be looking to understand the risks and assessing whether you can live with them or what you can put in place in terms of systems to reduce those risks. You're not so much expecting to change the terms of the contract itself. And I guess when we're thinking about the legal risks, we also need to bear in mind the real risk here was the customer-specific use of this product. For example, is it an exclusive arrangement where you couldn't procure a placement product? Or is there committed spend? And would you know if something had gone wrong or the product didn't do what it said it would? Yeah, that, that's right, Rosie. So SaaS contracts can often have built-in protections against real risks, and we need to approach this uh, beyond the on-paper exercise. We need to be talking about what the real-life impacts are. You need to understand how business critical the application is and what the real consequences could be if it doesn't work. What, what impact would that have on your organization? Would you have a plan B? Are there other workarounds that you could use, even on a temporary basis? And I suppose this might change over time too. There might be certain times of the year where your financial reporting software is critical, but maybe other times it's not. It also helps if you would know realistically if the service wasn't performing the way it should. So maybe it's not providing the functionality or the features that it promised, or maybe it is, but it's making errors, or maybe the way the service is provided has changed. Depending on the product, you'll have different levels of visibility over that. And a product where you can see the output and you can review it and you can see where something has gone wrong is going to be a lower risk profile because it allows that action to be taken immediately to fix whatever's gone wrong. And as you said, Rosie, other factors that can help uh, if there is not a committed spend with the supplier and if there are viable alternatives in the marketplace. So if you know the product isn't working the way that you expected it to, if you don't have a committed spend, if there are other products that might meet that business need, then overall your risk profile is, is looking a little better. You might get more comfortable with that. And another factor to, to bring to bear is what other users um, are in the market using the product. So if there are some significant entities who've been using this, particularly for a long time, you might find that reassuring. The longer the product's been in market, the more time the vendors had to work out issues and bugs, the more likely any IP issues would have come to light by now. All of this helps. And I should say that none of this would actually help you in a court of law, but you might be more willing to take on some risk than, for example, with a brand new product um, that hasn't stood the test of time or hasn't been given a seal of approval from other customers. So it's quite different from the scenario where you're getting something built for you and you can dictate or at least challenge and tweak the terms of the contract much more, right? If there isn't much that can be changed, what are the key issues that a customer should be concerned about or at least understand the impact of if they can't negotiate the details? That's right, Rosie. So if you've gone into that practical risk assessment exercise and you've decided that actually this, this is a relatively low risk contract from your perspective, um, or maybe you've tried to change some terms but you haven't had any luck, what are the particular topics that we are focusing on that might make a difference to the way 
um, this works in your business. So the first topic to touch on is service levels. And this is definitely something to spend some time on because it's the first part of the contract that we'll turn to if something actually goes wrong. And this is going to depend how business critical that SaaS service is. So basically, can you live with it if it goes down? How long can you survive without that product? And again, we come back to the question, what are your alternatives? What are your workarounds? One point to note in particular is the difference between a resolution time and a response time. So a response time can be only a notification that the repairs are underway uh, or an acknowledgement that you've raised an issue. But the one that we're really interested in is a resolution time, and that's a commitment to actually fix the product um, or fix the problem um, along certain timelines. And do SaaS vendors tend to give this commitment to actually fix problems? Well, that's a good question, and no, they don't. It's great if you can get it, but it's a very rare and happy day when I see a SaaS vendor offering a fixed service level in their standard terms. So generally, you'll only get a response commitment. How fast are they going to acknowledge that you've raised an issue? But again, just because it's not offered doesn't mean you can't ask or that you don't need it. If it's a business critical application, maybe you need more of a commitment to actually fixing the problem than the SaaS vendor offers you. So you just need to be realistic about what they'll commit to. You need to weigh that up in terms of how critical it is and consider what you'd actually do if the system went down. So there might be someone else who you can call on to fix the problem or there might be some other workaround. And the last point to touch on with service levels is what are the remedies if the service levels aren't met? What can you actually do about it? Is there a termination right for a, for a service level breach? So ideally, if the product just isn't performing as you need it to, especially on a consistent basis, you might want the ability to just walk away. But as we've already discussed, you might not actually need to. If you've got other options, if you're not committing to any minimum spend, maybe you don't need that termination right. The next topic to consider is documentation and whether the supplier commits that the, the product is actually going to comply with that documentation. So when we talk about documentation, we talk about what describes the services. What are you actually getting with this product? What does it do? What are its features? And it's really fundamental to understanding whether you're going to get what you are expecting to get. And in particular, understanding what happens if the service doesn't substantially conform to the documentation. And what would usually happen if it doesn't comply? So it all depends on what the contract says, but you'll often see an option for the supplier to correct whatever it was that didn't conform or to provide a suitable alternative, but often that's it and you won't get any more. So you need to consider, is, is that enough for them to fix it or to provide an alternative solution? Or do you need something more? Do you need the right to a refund? Do you need the right to terminate the contract and walk away? Again, all goes into that mix of uh, the overall risk profile and, and all those other factors that we talked about. And a connected topic to that is, is a warranty. And this can work in conjunction with both that documentation that we talked about and also the service levels to ensure that basically as a customer, you've got something to do, somewhere to go if something goes wrong, particularly within a certain period of time. So you need to understand whether you have a warranty period, how long it runs for, whether that's from uh, the date you sign the contract or the date you click accept on the contract, um, or whether it's from a, a different go live date. And particularly, you need to understand what it might exclude and what might invalidate the warranty. So sometimes you have a responsibility as the customer to uh, implement updates or upgrades and to not tamper with the software, although that can be pretty hard to do with a SaaS product. 
So you need to make sure that the people who are going to be interacting with the product on a day-to-day basis understand what they shouldn't do and what might actually remove those protections that, that you think that you've got in place under the contract. As with documentation, you need to understand what it will actually give you if that remedy is breached. So will it allow you to terminate? Are you required to go through multiple fixes? Are you allowed to claim damages? So not only does the warranty exist, but what could you actually do with it if if it's breached? What if the supplier doesn't give any warranty at all and says the product is provided as is? This is a common thing that we see. And obviously that is going to leave you more exposed from a legal perspective, that you'll be locked into something that just doesn't work or doesn't do what you thought it would. And in this situation, you need to go back to your overall risk profile, alternative options in place, just to see if this is a deal breaker for this product in the way that you need to use it. Another topic to consider is the IP indemnity. So obviously a a standard form contract that's given to you by the supplier is going to be a little unbalanced on liability and indemnities. They don't get offered up for free. But one thing that we do always expect to see is an intellectual property rights indemnity. IP indemnity. That sounds very legal. What does it actually mean? Right. So basically, this is the possibility that the supplier hasn't developed the software maybe as independently as it should have, might have even taken someone else's code and taken to an extreme by using the software in that scenario, you as the customer, you're potentially breaching someone else's copyright. And in a worst case scenario, you could be sued for this. And claims for breach of IP can be incredibly costly for for the party that's being sued. Now, generally speaking, the customer has no idea or control about how the service was created, especially for a SaaS contract. So you can't assess the risk that there is an IP breach. And really, it's not fair to hold you responsible um, if a third party says that you've breached their copyright. So for all of those reasons, it is pretty standard for a SaaS supplier to give an indemnity, which really means that if this happens uh, and if a third party makes a claim against you as the customer, the supplier is going to take the hit. They're going to be responsible for that, including by more or less reimbursing you as the customer for, for any costs that you have. So this is something that we, we really want to see and uh, is definitely worth raising with the vendor if you don't see it in their standard terms. And even if you do have an IPR indemnity in the contract, uh, there can also be some other hooks that you need to watch out for to make sure it's actually got some teeth and you can use it if you need to. So ideally, an IPR indemnity would fall outside of any other cap on liability under the contract. Otherwise, you could be exposed to the full cost of a very expensive IPR claim and the supplier would only be on the hook to reimburse, say, a year's worth of fees, which, to be honest, wouldn't even touch the sides of a big copyright infringement claim. And you also need to look out for any other unreasonable exclusions on when the indemnity would apply. Well, we wouldn't want the indemnity to just not apply if the customer's in breach of the contract. Yeah, that's a common one. If there's any breach of the contract, the indemnity won't apply. And that might just be unfair if the breach is really minor or is just not connected to the indemnity at all. So watch out for those kind of exclusions. As a really practical point, I think we need to talk about loss of data. So it's it's really common for a SaaS contract to say that if the software loses any data, the supplier isn't responsible for that. And this may or may not be a big problem, but it is probably going to be a problem if you are relying on that system to hold or process large amounts of data. 
For some applications, it might not be an issue. So, for example, if you're getting a license to use an information service where all the data is coming to you, but you're not putting any in, then maybe you'll be a bit more relaxed about it. But for many applications that we are purchasing, handling data is core to what we need that application to do. So it doesn't really seem fair that a vendor would be able to wash their hands of that responsibility. If your assessment is that data is crucial to the service, but you can't change this in the contract, I suppose you need to consider other practical ways you can protect against this, like having your own backups or engaging another supplier to do this. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, we won't necessarily be expecting that we will change the contractual position, um, but what other systems or mitigations can you put in place so that just in case that happens, uh, you would have another protection it's also worth making sure you know what's going to happen to your data when the contract expires or terminates. So do you get your data back automatically or do you have to ask the supplier for it? In what form is it going to be provided back to you? How long do you have to retrieve it? Often that's just a couple of weeks. This can be an operational headache, so it's worth checking with the right business team to make sure that it will work, that they're going to get what they need in the form they need and won't be caught out by any short timeframes that you weren't prepared for. And finally, it's worth touching on the issue of compliance with law. So in a lot of service agreements, you'll see a fairly standard uh, warranty from a supplier that the way they provide the services will you know, comply with applicable law. We're particularly worried about New Zealand law most of the time. But SaaS vendors often won't do this. And again, we come back to a one-to-many relationship. They're providing the same service to customers in many, many, many countries and so they are not going to take on the responsibility of making sure that the product meets all the legal requirements, everything in every jurisdiction. And the other angle to this is that they also won't promise, sometimes they even specifically say they don't promise, that if you use the software, you're going to comply with the very law that you're buying it to comply with. So for example, if you license some financial reporting software, to help with your financial reporting, all the sales material might say that it can be used for this, or it even might say that it's been designed to help you meet your statutory obligations. But it usually won't go so far as to say, if you use this, you will have ticked all the boxes you need to comply. That's a risk that a SaaS vendor just won't take on. So you need to make sure for yourself that the software is doing what you know it needs to, and you need to have other checks in place rather than just relying on the product. That's right. So you need to know what the legal requirements are and you need to have the capacity to check that the output of the product is, is doing what it should uh, rather than relying on the product to, to do what you need it to do. And again, we keep coming back to this, but it all depends on your overall risk profile. How's the service being used? What's the product being used for? And what's the risk exposure? So for example, if you are using software to support your regulatory requirements, maybe that's a little higher risk profile. If there's no real regulatory angle to it, if it's sort of a back office process that helps with your efficiency, but isn't going to be hauled up in front of a regulator, for example, maybe you're a little more relaxed about this. Thanks, Libby. That was really helpful. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But thank you so much for your insight and expertise. It's been great to talk to you. Not a problem. It's been great to be here. And to the listeners, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review, or follow the Tech Suite wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at minterallison.co.nz.